Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Ideas on Trapped is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. Welcome to Ideas on Trap Podcast, and my guest today is legendary urban planner, Alim Boto. Welcome to the show, sir. It's an honor to speak to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm quite honored. You are aware that some of the biggest cities into the future are going to be in the so-called low-income countries, because yeah. urbanization is exploding in yes. cities like Lagos, Kinshasa, yes. and yes. these cities are a bit different from some of the cities in other places around the world, especially in the West, you know, yes. in that they are lower income, they are a bit congested, they don't have much density, and yes. it's a challenge for such cities having to host that many people. Now, if I may ask you, what would you say the problem has been in making some of these cities work? Are we seeing a failure of markets or planning or a bit of both? I think that uh, there are sometimes market failures, but uh, I think that there have been a neglect of infrastructure. For me, a city, and that's, I think, common to all the cities of the world, whether they are, you know, in Europe, in America, in Africa or Asia, the main things are cities are labor markets. That's why people go to cities to find a job. And that's why a big firm will go to Lagos. They will go to Lagos rather than a small town somewhere. They will go to Lagos because they will find in Lagos people who are competent in whatever they want to do. They will find a large labor force. They will have a lot of choice. And so if I am a migrant living in a small village somewhere in Africa and not necessarily in Nigeria, I may want to go to Lagos because I know there are a lot of uh, jobs there. So if we accept that a city is a labor market, the most important thing are two things. First is transport. You should be able to move in this large city Within an hour, you should be able, ideally, to go from one side to another side in order to find the job you want and change job. You know, changing job also is very important. That's why company town, you know, sometimes you have a mining town or a town developed along a steel mill or something. And then everybody there is working for one employer, you know, the mine or the steel mill. This is not very good because 
you have no chance of changing jobs. I think the advantage of very large cities like Lagos or Abidjan or Dakar is that there are so many employers that you can feel your way. You know, you can change jobs and learn things from other people. That's what's the city. Now, what the planning should be? Planning should be transport. You know, there should be a system of transport. And when I say transport, I don't mean necessarily a subway. I mean, subway sometimes is necessary, but not always. It could be informal transport, you know, the different minibuses, for instance, or things like that, which are private. But the planners, they often consider them as a nuisance, you know, that uh, they are a little messy. They stop everywhere. Sometimes they don't follow the rules very much. But if they are there, it's because there are people who prefer to take this informal thing rather than a regular bus. So mm. we have to take them into account and we have to make them more efficient, you know, by having a specific stop where they can stop, which is wide enough and things like that, rather than eliminate it. So the first thing is transport. The goal is to allow people to move from one part of the city to another in less than one hour. Now, in a very large city like Lagos, I suppose it's a bit like, say, a city like Mexico City. You'll find that this is impossible right now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, from one side of the city to, you know, let's say you go from north to south, it may take you three hours to go there. The goal is to decrease this time. You know, how do you decrease this time so that you can have access? You know, any individual should have access to the maximum number of jobs. And it's the same for the employer. You know, the employer, when they look for employees, if they move to Lagos, suddenly they need somebody who is specialized, I don't know, a welder, for instance, somebody who is very specialized in something. They want to have a choice between competent people. If the transport system works well, they will have a choice between 100 welders and they will select what is best for their company. So transport is the most important thing, and you have to take into account informal transport. You know, this is a very important thing. You cannot just say the best will be to have a subway or, you know, it's possible that a subway might be necessary, but it's only one part of the transport system. You know, you cannot pretend that one day everybody will move by subway or municipal buses or even ferries or things like that. All this mode of transport have to, to be combined and thought together, including cars, by the way. You know, many of my colleagues now are dreaming of uh, cities without cars. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it can work because first you have freight and you have certain job which cannot be done without a car. You know, if you are a plumber or if you are an electrician, you have to move around with your material. You cannot take a subway if you are a plumber, you know, with, with your bathtub or something like that. So... A large city requires a lot of freight. You know, you have restaurants, you have bars. You need to bring food to those restaurants, to a bottle of beers, something like that. So you need the transport system which accommodates all modes of transport. You know, some of my colleagues have a, a preferred mean of transport that they love. You know, say light train, for instance, mm. tramway, or bicycle, or scooters, or, or whatever, or subway, or monorail. And I think that... It's possible that the monorail is a good thing, but it will be only a small component. You know, so the job of the planner is to accommodate all these different modes of transport. And if people prefer to take even taxi motorcycle, for instance, which I think in many countries of Africa, I'm sure in Lagos it exists too, you can yeah. make it. You, you have to accept that this is the best way for some people, not everybody. 
but for some people. So you have to also accommodate that and say, well, what do we do for them to reduce, for instance, reduce the pollution they cause, but also reduce accident, make them more convenient, because those means of transport are serving certain group of people who have no choice, you know, who cannot afford any, or who live in a part of the city which is not served by the normal transport. So transport is very important, and transport has to be multimodal, and you have to look at it. The other thing which is very important in every city is housing. People move to the city from the countryside or from another city, and they look for a job, but they have to find housing. And very often, I think, many of the cities in Africa, but also in Asia or even in Europe, they didn't welcome the migrants. They considered that the migrants are nuisance, you know, because usually they are relatively poor. Some of them are coming from the countryside, so they, they do not have the skills. You know, they have skills, but they are rural skills, which are not necessarily very useful in a city. So they have to learn skills. The city has to welcome those people because they are the labor force of the future. They are the ones who are going to pay taxes in the future. You cannot import only people who have PhD or things like that. I mean, those are very useful too. But we have seen that during the pandemic. During the pandemic, suddenly, I remember in New York, but everywhere else, people were saying indispensable people. Who are the indispensable people? And we found that the indispensable people were not professors like me. They were people who were delivering food in grocery stores. They were indispensable. They are indispensable for the life of the city. So that's why they have to be welcome to, you know. And for that, they need housing. So they need housing, they need land. I think that the big mistake that many cities have done, again, everywhere, in Europe as well as in Asia or in South Africa, by the way, is to concentrate too much on housing and not enough of infrastructure. I think what uh, planners need to do is to let the people build whatever they want, even if it's a shack, but provide clean water supply, provide sewers, and some services like uh, health and schools, and let the people build whatever they want on the lot, even on the very small lot. You know, in my book, I have an example in Indonesia, what they call the Kampong development, which were villages which were absorbed by the city. And, you know, if they were very poor, they will have a lot, which is only 15 square meter, and they will build a house of 10 square meter with corrugated iron and bamboo, and, and that's it. This is okay, providing they have clean water supply and that the dirty water is evacuated. What is terrible is to live in an area where garbage accumulates, children play in dirty water, uh, and there is no health facilities at all or schools. So to me, the criteria of a successful city is how long do they take to absorb a migrant, a migrant who is coming from the rural area, who have no skills, he has only his arms or her arms, and how long does it take to absorb them so that they can get an urban job where they are very productive for the city and then contribute to the welfare of the city? So some cities have tried to measure it a bit informally, and some cities take one or two generations. You have one or two generations of migrants living in extreme poverty, very often being sick because they live in very unhealthy neighborhood, and it takes two generations to be absorbed. In other cities, in some cities of Asia that I know, in half a generation, those people are absorbed. So for me, 
how quickly you can absorb these people in the city life as a sign of success that you can measure. Now, the attitude very often of the housing board of people in government involved in housing is to say, well, these are poor people. Let us be nice with them and build really nice houses for them. So they build kind of a walk-up apartment or five, six-story or something like that. And the problem with that, sometimes they are well-designed, most of the time badly designed. But when they are well-designed, those are too expensive. So the government, instead of delivering one million lot a year to absorb those migrants, they deliver 500 houses. So the houses are nice, you know, they have electricity, they have a plumbing, but 500 houses do not solve any problem at all, you know, for all the others. So I think that you have to give up the idea of building houses. And this is not very popular, by the way. Politicians like to say, we are going to have one, usually they say one million houses, and then they end up building only 5,000. And they call the press, they build a sample building, and they say, you see, everybody in the city now is going to be entitled to a house like that, and then it's never get built. And then we are back to square one. So I think we have to be very realistic. We have to accept poverty. We have to accept that there are a lot of difference of income in a city. And we have to concentrate the resources of the government on few things which are important, like water supply, sewer, and things like that. Not, uh, you know, not having an ideal city. And poverty is something which is temporary. For instance, uh, I used to work in Korea a long time ago. You know, Korea in what, 1968, 70, I think, had about the GDP of Mali. You know, it has about the same. And then what happened? And suddenly now it's an industrialized country. They absorb migrants very intelligently, I think. They absorb migrants. And the area which were slums are well developed. You know, you still have a neighborhood which were former slums, which have been developed. So you see, poverty is a temporary phenomenon. It's not a permanent one. And you have to accept it when it happens, but then slowly make the people employed. So slowly they will emerge from poverty. You don't address the problem of poverty by giving, say, somebody who has an income of, let's say, $300 a year to give this person a house which costs, you know, $50,000 is not going to solve poverty because you will not give very many houses like that to them. And probably those houses are going to go to people of much higher income very soon. So you see where infrastructure is always useful for everybody. So that's my attitude. You see those two things. First, the people who live in the city are the ones who are going to make this city. So the infrastructure have to serve this. And the infrastructure, in particular the roads, have to give access to a lot of land, even if the city is small, so that everybody have access to a piece of land where they can build something. If originally they build a shack, which is not very nice, doesn't matter, providing they have an infrastructure which allows them to stay healthy and to have access to jobs eventually. So then they will themselves either move to another neighborhood or build something which is better. You know, again, I think my chapter on the Kampong in Indonesia in my book illustrates this very well. I'm going to come back to cities as labor markets later, which is one of yeah. the most powerful insights I got from your book. So yeah. we're talking about housing. For example, 
in Nigeria, it is popularly reported that we have a housing deficit of 17 million households. There are right. so many independent estimates that put the number yeah. higher than that. Right, so yeah. how do we, especially in the face of rapidly increasing urbanization, how do we increase urban housing at a big enough scale? Do we have to democratize land markets in some of these cities? Yes. For example, in Nigeria, we have a land use act that places the ownership of land solely in the hands of government. Though yes. there is an informal land market, but it's, of course, largely informal. So do we have to democratize ownership? And would you say the ideas of Hernando de Soto would be useful here? Like we need to absorb more people into the formal land registry. Right, yeah. I, I like your idea of democratizing the land market. That's exactly what you have to do. Now, how do you do that? I will give you an example in Indonesia where I, I worked again. When the government started investing in the kampongs, you know, which were slums at the time, you know, very bad slums actually, but providing the infrastructure in those slums. You know, I was working for the World Bank at the time and we insisted that they should survey this informal area and give a tenure to everybody, even people who had only, say, 10 square meters of land. And then the Indonesian told us that will cost a lot of money. Uh, it will be very, very long to do because, uh, you know, all the streets are crude and things like that. Very difficult to survey. And they say, why don't we just accept the informal market? And, you know, it took a long time for us to accept. And then we accepted it. And then we realized that after people were giving water, you know, clean running water in those slums, they had a bill to pay for water. And the bill was a substitute for tenure, you know, because they have an address. Mm. You know, you have an informal market, which become formal because it was legal, because people could do it. So you have to legalize. It doesn't mean necessarily that we have to have a registry in the cadaster, in the formal cadaster, because that may take 20 years. You know, you could consider, you know, in a way, the compound in Indonesia, you consider an entire neighborhood as a condominium. So it's a condominium. And within this condominium, you establish the rules which are specific to the condominium and then let people trade. They know what is the boundary of their lot. Usually they are very small and everybody knows that. And say if you have three or four witnesses, you have a piece of paper and little by little, then you could more formalize it. But I think that recognizing the informal trading of land, make it it legal and including, by the way, we found then in the compound that even banks now accept as a title just the water bill. You know, there is a water bill, Mr. So-and-so during last five years had paid his water bill at this address. And, you know, you do not have a formal survey, but you know the lot is, say, 50 square meter. And a bank will accept that as collateral because it's recognized by the government. It's not, you know, it's not going to be bulldozed. You know, the, the problem with informal settlement is that sometime the government will just go through, bulldoze the area or put a highway through and do not compensate people because they do not recognize the legitimacy of their claim. And so if you do that, then, of course, you create an enormous uncertainty on tenure you do not encourage people to invest in their own neighborhood. And of course, bank will never touch it because 
you know, if they loan something and then a highway goes through and there is no compensation. So I think that integrating the informal sector, not necessarily making it formal in the sense that they have to follow the same rule as a former, but have special rule for the informal sector to make it legal. And then look at land use regulation. You know, that's I've been my problem all over the world. And that's true, by the way, in New York or Paris, that there are standards for housing which are not really reflective of what the people want. For instance, in New York, the government imposed by regulation larger apartments than what people want. You know, there are a lot of people now in New York who are living alone or a small couple with only one child or no child. And the regulation do not reflect that, that those people will be very happy to live in a studio and they are not allowed to build a studio. So I think it's the same in developing country. If you are poor, you can live in your family in 10 square meter. But if those 10 square meter are close to jobs and have, again, access to clean water, and if there is a school nearby, this is what is important. And you should be able to live there legally, you know, legally without the threat of being exploited or or things like that. And again, you know, you you were mentioning at the beginning housing deficit. I, I don't believe in housing deficit. Deficit is only what is your minimum standard for a house? Have you measured all the houses in Lagos to know which one are below the standard? And what is your minimum standards? You know, is it 10 square meter? Is it 100 square meter? Do you need the two bathroom? For instance, uh, the UN at, at this thing, I think you, you have to have, I think it's one room per person or one half person per room or something like that. And if it's below that, it's a slum. And it's informal thing. It's a deficit in the housing. I don't think it is. Uh, by definition, all the people who live in Lagos live in something they can afford. The problem of housing is that they can afford very, very little, and the no water and no electricity. Maybe I don't know. And so you have to increase the consumption of housing of the people who are already living there. It's not a question of saying this is not housing. We need to build a new house somewhere to compensate for this house. So I think that the, the idea of deficit, you know, it doesn't lead you to good policy. It's too mm-hmm. abstract. You could say, you know, in Lagos, for instance, uh, we can produce only, I don't know, 20 liters of clean water per capita per day. And uh, uh, so we want, of course, to increase it to, for instance, uh, 60 or 80 or 100. And then you will need to bring more clean water, you know, or use more clean water in Lagos. That's legitimate. Let's say you have a deficit of water in the sense that you want to increase the consumption of water. Now, when you do that, you have to look at the income distribution curve within the city. You know, but in my book, I have several of those curves. And you will have to see if you increase the supply of water in Lagos, you have to make sure that the one who increase their consumption are the one now who consume very little. And uh, so you, you increase their consumption. So you have to measure consumption of these different groups. It's really <laughs> to increase consumption. It's not to build more houses. Mm-hmm. And, and people will build themselves more houses if there is enough land with infrastructure. So the goal of the city is to develop more land with infrastructure. So urban planners are by nature very practical people. But I'm going yeah. to 
ask you a bit of an abstract question. Do you think part of the problem, I mean, with this housing thing, is that on some level, we do not really respect or extend that abstract idea of property rights to poor people? Is that part of the problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think there is a paternalism, let's say, of the elite, which considers that poor people will always be dependent on a social program. And in a way, you have a, a society who largely live from markets, but then you try to condemn the poor into a kind of non-market things, you know, like putting them in public housing or saying, well, wait for public housing. We are going to provide you with public housing. You know, don't worry about it. So they are in a socialist system where with no property right, you know, their property right is going to be given to them by the government. It's not something they will acquire by themselves. So so you have these two society and then it creates a poverty trap for the poor. You know, they cannot escape because they never accumulate capital. They cannot invest in their own house because their house belongs to the government, doesn't belong to them. So I think that, yes, it's a problem of property right. And very often also many cities recognize property right only if you have a lot developed very formally of a certain size. You know, they will not allow people to own land if the parcel is not at least 200 square meter or 500 square meter, I don't know. And this is not correct. You know, if somebody owns 100 square meter, you should recognize that this ownership is 100 square meter. Because if not, if you put this minimum threshold of ownership, that means you exclude from ownership half of the population of your city. And you make them live in a way, in a, you know, in a non-market economy where the rest of the economy is working on market. Let's talk a bit about density. So when I travel to New York City, I enjoyed the fact that from my hotel, I can access a cafe, I can access a cinema, I can go to my appointments, possibly all within a walking distance of 15 to 20 minutes. Yes. That is something that I don't have in my city. Sometimes if I want to see a movie from my house, I have to drive two, sometimes two and a half hours. Yes. So how can cities in, uh, I don't like that phrase, developing world, but that's what I want. Yeah, I don't like it either. Yeah, I don't like it either. I don't like it. So how can our cities, and by us, I mean cities like Lagos and Co, better optimize for density? Or I'm also seeing ideas by some other planners or thinkers in that space saying that, Perhaps some of these cities have to give up on the idea of density altogether. So, uh, controlling densities. Yeah, you see, every land use regulation control density uh, tend to put density down. Always, you have minimum lot size. So some people would like to have a small lot, but they are obliged to have a bigger lot because that's the regulation. And then you have floor ratio or maximum height of building. I think that the height of building should be removed you know they, so planners say haha but if we do that we will not have the infrastructure to serve higher densities infrastructure is much cheaper than land always much cheaper than land so 
what engineers are doing, they are saying, hey, you have now a water pipe which is only that big. Therefore, the density cannot be more than that because we will not have enough water if the density increase. But they are making a trade-off between land and the price of a pipe. And land is more expensive and more useful. So I think that if they let the density increase, of course, they have to have a, a system of taxation on land. But again, if they recognize the ownership of land to a lot of people, they can have a type of property tax or something like that, which will allow them to have the resource to pay for the infrastructure. And it's always cheaper to increase the level of infrastructure in existing area to increase the capacity than to expand further away. So, you know, if your regulation restricts densities, it means that the people will have to build somewhere else, you know, further away. And they are not going to leave the city because the planners say, you know, the density here is restricted to that. They are going to stay there, but they are going to live farther away and at lower densities. So many of those regulations should be audited. You know, I, I'm not saying that all regulations are bad and not at all. I think the, the market needs regulation. But the regulation which regulates consumption that the people themselves can see, you know, if if I go into a studio which is 20 square meter, I know it's 20 square meter. If I want to rent it or buy it, this is my business. The government do not have to tell me, no, no, a studio has to be 30 square meter, you know, or at least you cannot buy 20 square meter. This is absurd. Let the consumer decide what is best for them because then they can, you know, the problem you were mentioning, they can make a trade-off between living in a smaller house but closer to amenities or a large house far away from everything, you know. Some people may prefer that. So regulation restricts the choice. And, of course, regulation, because they have this minimum consumption standards, if you look at the income distribution curve, those minimum construction standards, uh, housing standards, have a cost. So they eliminate automatically maybe 50% of the population from anything formal. You know, informality is really created by regulation. It's not created by anything else. I want to talk about perhaps maybe there is a kind of market failure in yes. uh, trying to deliver density. Devon Zugel, I'm sure you are aware she's your friend. Wrote, she's my friend, yes. She's yes. A good friend. She wrote a blog post a couple of days yes, ago. Yes, I, I read yes. it. Yes, yes. Yeah, very interesting. I, I found it very interesting. So, and, I mean, why reading that? I Because you I know, like it. A, yeah, Devon, at the last line of her thing, she says, I have not discussed regulation. And mm-hmm. my experience is that most of the inconsistency or contradiction of densities in cities are due to regulations. And I will argue with her about that. Uh, you know that she has to do a blog on regulation. Uh, yeah. uh, you know. I would I would love to read that because I mean why internalizing the idea she was putting forward? I thought about my street. So I live on a beautiful street. There's yeah. access to a major road and so many other amenities. It's gated, well secured, and all that. I uh, but, Yeah, but we have just nine houses. You know. Landlords did these huge compound houses. Yes. You know, and I can't help but think every time I go back and forth that this is an area that can actually house a lot more people. 
So would you say that's a failure of market? Because I think that that equilibrium came to be because the first settlers on my streets preferred building for space as opposed to uh, access. Yeah, but that's not a a failure of market. You know, market is not a, it's a mechanism. It's not a God, it's not a religion. It's a mechanism. So here you have people in your compound who live there because they enjoy having low density. And I hope that they paid for it. They they didn't steal the lot, so they paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's, they reflect the market. Uh, At a certain point, if there is demand for higher density there, a developer will come to your compound and say, I'm making a deal with you. You know, I will give you that much money and uh, we are going to build more houses there. Unless, unless there is a regulation which says you cannot have more houses there or unless the water company tell you we will never provide enough water in this area for higher density. You know, there are market failures, by the way, but I don't think that density is part of market failures. I think market pretty rational densities if they are free to to do. So let us talk about market failure. Uh, For instance, pollution is a market failure. You know, there is no way to decrease pollution directly through market. I mean, you can do it by taxing, you know, polluting car more than non-polluting car. You know, Uh, this you can do, but you have to address it through market mechanism. But the market itself is not going to create a non-polluting thing. The same with global warming. You know, you have to price carbon. The government has to put a price on carbon because the market will not going to put a price on carbon. That's that's clear. And then for major infrastructure, for instance, say if a large city like Lagos needs more water, you know, enough water, clean water to everybody, you need a major work to get the water somewhere, from a river, from deep well, I don't know. And this major work is not going to be created by markets. The government could use a private company to do it, but the initiative has to come from the government to say, we need that many millions of cubic meter of water in the next 10 years. And our engineers say that to do that, we need to have, say, deep well or whatever water plants, and that will cost that many million dollars, and that will be recovered from taxation. So it could be tax on land, it could be tax on income tax, I don't know. And then we have to do this major work somewhere in the city or in the suburb of the city, you know, where you will have the water plant. So all this is not done by market. The total amount of water which will be brought to, you know, it has to be done by government. It has to be planned. And after when you you will allow the land market to work, if you are allowed to put a network of pipes with water a bit everywhere, including in area which are not yet developed and including in area which have very low density, but could not densify without more water. Finally, on housing before I, I move on. Do you think that some of uh, newer propositions or technologies like blockchain, for example, hold Uh, any promise in terms of land registration and generally democratizing property rights in cities? It's quite possible. I am not knowledgeable about, you know, I'm very interested and intrigued by blockchain. 
but I have not seen yet example, but it's quite possible that, yes, this could do it, yes. You know, I was, at the beginning, I was talking about the problem of formal cadastres, you know, the traditional property right given by cadastre, where you have a surveyor from the government, you know, start taking things. And this is very slow. It's very costly to do. It's possible that there are better way of doing it. And it's possible that blockchain will be, but uh, no, I've not seen example yet, but it's possible. And it might be a good way to start in a city like Lagos, just to try it, see it. Interesting. So let's talk about charter cities. Uh, ah. I know you're very, you're very good friends with Paul Roma. Uh, yes. I became intrigued by the idea when I first saw his presentation. And I've sort of followed how that idea developed. But first of all, why do you think some of these projects failed? Uh, The one in Honduras and Madagascar. Yeah. What do you think? Because because, uh, government were not ready to allow a a shorter city. They saw that as just a new real estate development. And they thought that they could control it. And if the existing government control it, it means it's going to be a traditional city. You know, it's not going to be a shorter city. I think that in Honduras, it was very clear. In Madagascar, I'm, I'm less aware of the details, but Honduras, I follow that. By the way, there are several new shorter cities in Honduras now. I'm curious to see if they will succeed or not. Actually, Devon is involved in one of them. And uh, I'm curious. Sometimes I'm a little uneasy when I see that one of the first things that the promoter of a new shorter city is asking a, a big architect to put a design first. To me, a shorter city is, again, developed land. And the possibility that you were talking about at the beginning, democratize land ownership. That means that if you move to a shorter city and you know, you want to open a small restaurant where you will sell sandwiches to workers. You should be able to either rent or buy a little piece of land where you will build your restaurant. You should not go through the government and say, I want to open a restaurant. Please give me a permit or thing like that. So for me, a shorter city is first a layout of streets, not building. You know, it's a layout of streets where you can buy very small pieces of land. And you can buy some big one, you know, maybe a department store or an office building. So they want a big lot. That's fine. But there should be small lots available to people who move there. Because, again, the indispensable people are not only bankers and architects and lawyers. Indispensable people are the people making sandwiches. Mm. And so so I think that one of the problems is that they have to start with the layout and making land available to all sorts of people, including very small lots. And I think that will work. Now, my argument with Paul, for the first part of your question, when we first discuss it, you know, when we start working together, and uh, he told me, well, we think that we could do 50 shorter cities, you know. My first reaction is cities are dictated by location, and they are not anymore location for 50 cities. You know, the good locations are all taken. Mm. So if you want to start from scratch, you know, you go to the countryside and, uh, you know, 
you have some farmers there even, and you say, oh, the land is very cheap there because, uh, you know, there is nothing. Why don't we do a shorter city? You know, in Lagos, uh, land is so expensive. Uh, don't forget that a city is people. It's not the sewer. You are not going to move to a city because it has a nice sewer system. You are going to move to a city because there are jobs, because there are other people you want to work with or be friend with. So the problem with any new city is who is the first one? Would you leave Lagos for, let's take uh, Neom in Saudi Arabia, the city that the, the Saudi want to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. So if I told you, okay, in Neom, we could give you a house for $50,000 in Neom, you know, and it has this fantastic infrastructure. Would you leave Lagos to go there? Unless you know how many people are already there, are you going to move by yourself or with your family? And you don't know if the schools are working. You don't know if uh, if there are restaurants or bars there. You know, well, bars in Saudi Arabia is always a problem. But <laughs> <laughs> and so you see, that's a problem. I have an example. We explain the problem of a new city in South Korea. Uh, they thought that you know Seoul was too large. And they thought that they would build a satellite town, which would be self-sufficient. So they calculate how many jobs they will need, how many housing. And the Koreans are very good at that. They really plan it extremely well. It was financed very well, too. They match exactly the number of jobs, and they use the demographic, everything. And they, they are very good at logistics, too. So they build the school, the sewer, the transport, the buses, all at the same time and well done. And it was it was a nice architecture. So the idea was it will be self-sufficient, that the people who live there will work there. When the city is fully built and inhabited, they found that 90% of the people who live there commute to Seoul. They work in Seoul, but they live in the new city. And the people who have jobs there, they come from Seoul, they live in Seoul, but they work in the new city. Why that? Why they didn't manage to match the thing? It's a question of the first inhabitant. When the plan is finished and the thing is ready to be sold, they told firms in Korea, well, uh, you know, if you want to establish yourself here, you could have a factory of this and it will cost that much and you will pay that much for electricity. So very attractive. So a firm say, hey, we are in Seoul right now, but we want to expand. And in Seoul, we cannot expand because land is too expensive. So let's move to this new city where we'll have something more modern. Now, this firm, if they have the money to move to the new city, completely new, it means that they have already employees. They have already a business. So they are not going to fire their employees and say, we are going to recruit entirely new employees. So the employees which are already in Seoul working in the old site are going to commute to this. Now, why don't they say, oh, we have this new job there and we are going to move in an apartment in the new city? Because where they are now, maybe they have their mother-in-law is babysitting their kid and they cannot move. Or maybe they have a school that they like a lot for their children and they don't want to move their children to a new school which have no record. You know, there are a lot of reasons why people don't want to move. Or maybe because they are a couple and one of them is working in the neighborhood and do not want to commute. For, so the, the new firms are attracting existing employees from outside. And the people would take housing there. You know, if you are a young couple in Seoul, you are desperately looking for a new apartment. 
but it's too expensive and so on. And suddenly they propose you a nice apartment in the new city. Now, you will need a, an hour, 20 minute commute, but you think, well, this is a really nice apartment. There will be a nice school. So you move there with your family, but your job isn't so. You know, because if you can afford an apartment in the new city, it's because you already have a job. So you are not going to quit your job and say, well, I moved to the new city. I'm going to look for a job in the new city. Maybe after 20 years, you will do that. But initially, you won't. So you see, this is a problem of new cities. And that will include charter cities unless the charter city becomes so attractive in terms of, again, democratization of land use and of property rights. But again, you have the problem of the first mover, you see. So that's why cities like maybe Abuja or Brasilia are successful. It's because they are civil servants, so they are obliged to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, and the government pay for it. And all the taxpayer, by the way, all the <clears throat> taxpayer of Nigeria are paying for Abuja. Yeah, that much you know, is true. Yeah, and, and this is true also for Brasilia, you know. The people who live in Brasilia are not paying for their infrastructure. It's the Brazilian who live in Recife or Rio de Janeiro. They are paying for that. So you see, those examples are not very good examples, the, the new capitals. You know, the other thing which is very difficult, and I, I saw that when I was working in China in new uh, economic zone, you know, which usually piggyback on a city, is a cash flow. You know, when you build a new city, there are certain things that are discrete, you know, for instance, you cannot build a sewer plant for 500 people. You are obliged to build a sewer plant for at least 10,000 people or 20,000 people. And when you build that, you know, you have to spend for 10,000 people, but you will not get 10,000 people before five or six years. So you pay interest on this capital for five or 10 years. Uh, so you have a negative cash flow for a long time. And that, I, the sewer plant, but that's true for schools, that's true for roads, that's true for the water system, that's true for garbage removal. You know, you need right away to bring trucks to remove the garbage, to treat it, and uh, before you have any inhabitants. So you have to pay a lot of interest. My experience in developing new economic zone in China was that the cost of interest, you know, during construction, that means the cost of interest before the lot were sold to the private sector, represent sometimes 40% of the entire expenditure. So this negative cash flow, if it's a private city, by the way, you have bankers. So the banker, let's say, trusts you and they say, all right, you have planned to have, say, 1,000 people the second year, 10,000 people the fifth year, and then 100,000 people in 15 years. So they trust your business plan. But then imagine that it's a little slow at coming. So you are borrowing more and more money. And at a certain time, the banker get cold feet and they say, we are not going to roll over your loan because, you know, you think it's too risky. You are accumulating a negative cash flow much longer than we thought. And then they will cut you your finance and then you will go bankrupt. And th- that's why uh, the most successful new cities were capitals because the entire country were paying for the bill. You know, money was no object. Does it mean you're bearish on private cities generally? So I, I'll give you yeah. I'll give you yeah. some examples and I'll try to be brief. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, in Lagos, there was this project called Eco Atlantic Project. This was a yeah. land that was basically reclaimed from the Atlantic Ocean. 
he raised six billion dollars, right? Yes. And at the end of the day, they ended up building office buildings for oil companies, banks, and skyscrapers, apartments that cost two million dollars. Almost nobody go there to work, which fails the labor market condition, in my view, right? Yes, right. There was also the uh, the story of Gargan. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. Gargan in, in, in yeah. the suburb of Delhi. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. So where yeah. maybe it was partly driven by the labor market, you know, tech workers and private firms, yeah. but we saw that they could not deliver on things like the sewer system. Public goods yeah. investments failed woefully. But the common thread in some of these narratives and initiatives, and of course, you know that private cities are very, very hot right now in Silicon Valley. Yes, I know. Yeah, yes, right. <laughs> is to look at Shenzhen and say, oh, yeah, this was a fishing village of 30,000 people. Yes, yes, right, yeah. And it's now the manufacturing capital yeah, of the yeah. world, the yeah, center yeah, of like technology that, yeah. with 15 million people. So. Yeah. Are you bearish on private cities generally? That's one. No, Secondly, no. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. what are we missing from the Shenzhen story? You know, Shenzhen, by the way, I know it well because when it was a little more than a fishing village, uh, I was working for the World Bank. The Chinese invited me there with a team. We have five or six planners, uh, economists. So at the time, it was about 300,000 people, but dispersed. You know, it was not really a big city. And they say, we want to build a city of, uh, at the time, they say 4 million people. And we want the World Bank to finance it. And uh, this is one skeleton in my closet. I told them, I told them, you are too ambitious. Uh, if you want to build a city of 2 million, up to 2 million. You know, I made in the back of an envelope, I made a calculation. I said, look, 2 million, a city is so large, you know, so fast. It would be impossible because of logistics. You know, you will not have enough trucks. You will, you know, it will be impossible. And I was wrong. So after that, I followed because, you know, I was spectacularly wrong. I followed what happened in Shenzhen. I went there regularly. And you know what created Shenzhen? First, location. You know, I was telling you at the beginning, location. They have a deep port, a natural deep port in Shenzhen. You know, the rocks are going there. And it's next to Hong Kong. Hong Kong port is already saturated. They are at a commuting distance from Hong Kong. So when they want somebody very specialized, an architect, an engineer, at the time when they build it, you know, that was in 83, you know, when I was there, 83, 84, uh, they needed the manpower will commute from Hong Kong. They will spend maybe the night in Shenzhen and go back. So, and then you have the Pier River Delta on the other side, of Hong Kong, you had Guangzhou, you know, which is a very important city too. So they are in between. Now, the major thing which did the success of Shenzhen was Deng Xiaoping, for the first time in the history of China, put a line around Shenzhen and say, within this area, the firms are going to pay the workers according to market, and people will come to Shenzhen will negotiate their salary with their employers, depending on their skill. In China before that, if you were, say, a geologist at 30 years old, 
the government will say your pay is this per month, period. If you are a welder, the government will say for entire China, this is your pay. And the government will decide where you will be employed. You have no labor market. There were no labor market in China. You know, people were employed, but the government tell them where to, even a kid coming out of high school, the government will say, you are going to work in this factory for the rest of your life. Now, in Shenzhen, for the first time, you had a labor market and a lot of Chinese coming from the north, from all over China, the one where the most courageous, you know, a bit like your migrants coming to Lagos are the most courageous in a way that, you know, it's a selection of people. They decided that they were, they were trusting their own skill. They say, we had rather work and negotiate our salary and change employment when we want rather than stay with them. So you had an influx of people of talent from all over China. And that's why, you know, Shenzhen is in an area where everybody speaks Cantonese normally, you know, in the south of China, like Hong Kong or Guangzhou. But you will find that in Shenzhen, most people speak Mandarin because they came from all over China. They didn't come from, there are some people from Guangzhou, obviously, from the Pirival Delta, but say the language that you hear the most is Mandarin because they came from all over. So you see, what created the enormous success of Shenzhen was a market, was was the labor market. You know, it was the first time you had a labor market in China. And then after that, they used experiment and you had that, you know. And by the way, housing also, it was the first housing on the market that people would be paid at a market price, but then with their salary, they would have to pay for housing. You know, where before in China, housing was provided by your employer uh, entirely. That means that you have no mobility and you have no capital either, by the way. You cannot leave your job because if you leave your job, you have no savings and you have no houses. So that's the story of Shenzhen. So, and do not forget the location. Look at the, the container port of Shenzhen is one of the best in the, in the world. And it's because the location, you know, it's even better than uh, Hong Kong. Huh? It's larger than Hong Kong. Hong Kong, they have to do a lot of uh, land reclamation where it's a natural, they don't need to dredge it or anything. You know, it's a natural beauty. So that's the story. So I am not uh, bearish. You know, I, I like the idea of trying new cities and private cities. I think that's a good thing. But let's say, you know, just to think that if you have a good infrastructure, you know, many new cities, they say, oh, we will have this fantastic system for removing garbage by vacuum and things like that. And this is good <laughs> and well. If the city is reasonably clean, that's good enough. You know, and you don't move to a city because the garbage is vacuumed. You move to a city because there is a good job. The city is attractive. You have bars, cinemas, and, you know, whatever. If you like to go jogging or things like that, you have nice parks or, you know. But you, you move to a city mostly because of the people who live there. So the question of new city, how do you attract a lot of people right away in the beginning? Who will be the guinea pig, you know, to live in this new city? And then there is a financial aspect, you know, this cash flow. You need to have a lot, a lot of money in advance to finance it because the bankers will get cold feet. Maybe I've been talking too much and not letting you ask <laughs> enough questions. <laughs> I enjoy it. You, you, that was yeah. very interesting. I hope we, yeah. maybe we can do it again sometime. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. 
If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasontrapped.com. 